The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. We're in the book of Ecclesiastes, and today we finish a series we've been in uh, for 12 weeks now. And uh, I'm excited we're going to land the plane. Next week, we're going to start a brand new series. I'll tell you that about it at the end of the service here this morning. And uh, so if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, the words are going to be on the screen. And if you don't have a Bible at all, we'd love to give you one after the service at the connect table. Let me pray for our time in the word together. Let's pray together. Jesus, Lord, this is your word. Uh, God, it's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joint and marrow. And it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And God, in all things, in all things, in all things, in all things, the scripture says, are open and bare before the eyes of you with whom we have to live. God, when the spirit of God divides our heart. And so God, we ask that this morning. That you would divide our hearts to allow us to see you purely, clearly for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. How many of you guys wear contacts? Anybody wear contacts? A fellow contact wearer? When I was in fourth grade, um, I was in Miss Abbott's class, one of the best teachers I ever had. And I was failing every single quiz in fourth grade because she would write the quiz on the board and I was sitting in the back. And uh, after a few quizzes, she was like, uh, she went to my mom and she's like, uh, hey, Diane, I think your son is having trouble seeing the board from where he's sitting. And so that led to a process where we went to the eye doctor and um, it found out that Matt is in fact blind. And, um, and if you know me, that's no joke. And uh, he's also deaf. That's a whole other story. But, um, <clears throat> and so that day when we went to the eye doctor, the doctor was like, hey, look, <clears throat> We can put him in glasses, and that would be fine. Um, the only thing is, uh, the glasses, see, because he doesn't see very well, the glasses are going to be really, really thick. I'm not sure he really wants. The, so why don't we try to put him in a pair of contacts? And uh, so in fourth grade, at the eye doctor, I was introduced to contacts. And so for like the next, uh, I don't know, 12 years or so, I wore contacts every day of my life. If I took contacts out at night, I put them in saline solution, I had to go immediately to bed because I could not see anything. I literally, if I took my contacts out, I could not see the numbers on the alarm clock. How many of y'all are that blind like me, okay? Yes, I literally could not see. And so I would take those contacts out and then I would put on a pair of glasses and and they looked like these Steve Urkel, like really thick Coke bottle glasses. I was so embarrassed. And so I wore contacts every day of my life. And uh, if you wear contacts, you know, um, like if you leave them in, like if you get the contacts you're supposed to take out every day, I think they call them daily. Um, if you leave them in and you wake up in the morning, you know what happens? You know what happens? You wake up and your eye is swollen shut from this goo all around. You know, have you ever had that experience before? Yes, it is so nasty. And so I would wake up. When I would, and no, it is terrible. I would wake up in the mornings if I would have these, con and I was sleeping in them. And so I tried all different kinds of contacts, like the contacts you wear for a week, the contacts you wear for two weeks, the contacts you throw away after a month. And every single one of them did the same thing to my eyes. I would wake up in the morning and my eyes would be bloodshot. And so this wasn't good when you're in ministry and you wake up on a Sunday morning, you're going to lead people and your eyes are bloodshot. They're like, what's wrong? Did you have too much to drink last night? Uh, are you tired? I'm like, no, 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 I'm not tired. It's my contacts. 
contacts and it was miserable. You know what I'm talking about? If you wear contacts, you know what I'm talking about. And then in the late 90s, there was this procedure that would change my life called LASIK eye surgery. You ever had that? Anybody had that in here? And so when it came out, I went to this consultation and they were like, hey, um, yeah, you pr it probably would be good for you to have it, but we can't do it to you because your cornea is too thin. And I was like, oh, what a bummer. I still have to wear contacts. And so uh, that was like 1998. And then I'm estimating, but I think somewhere around 2011, I went back to the LASIK eye surgeon because uh, the, the technology had changed. And so I went back in and he was like, yes, you are a candidate for LASIK eye surgery. The problem was it was so insanely expensive. You know what I'm talking about if you ever had it? So here's what I did. Don't judge me. I found a Groupon for LASIK eye surgery. No kidding. Don't judge me. I'm cheap, all right? So I bought this Groupon. Groupon for LASIK eye surgery from this guy who was legit. I checked him out. He had an office in Atlanta and an office in Dubai. So if he was international, he had to have been legit. And so I bought the Groupon and I went and I had my eyes done. And he told me before I went in and I sat down on the table and did the eye. And it literally took like 30 minutes to get me prepped, but like, like a minute and a half to do my eye. It was crazy. He was like, look, tomorrow morning you're going to be in pain, but you're going to wake up. And for the first time in your life, you know what he said you're going to be able to see? What do you think you're going to be able to see? The numbers on the clock. I'm like, no way. This is too good to be true. And so I woke up the next morning, and uh, my eyes were just bloodshot red. But when I opened my eyes the next morning, the most amazing thing in the world happened. I could read the numbers. on It was amazing. Any guys ever had LASIK eye surgery, worn contacts? You're like, I couldn't recommend the procedure anymore. Listen, I was thinking about that process that I went through and, and the book of Ecclesiastes that we've walked through here now for 12 weeks. And we've come to this end of the book. We've come to the end of this absurd life. And Solomon has, has told us everything in life that he's tried to pursue. And it's as if Solomon had this lens on that he was looking at life and nothing was clear. His eyes were always bloodshot. He was always tired. Nothing ever made sense. He could never see anything clearly. And Solomon gets to the end of this whole thing and he's got this lens that he's looking through that he tells us in the book of Ecclesiastes, he calls the under the sun lens. Now, if you've been here a while for 12 weeks, this sounds familiar to you. And so Solomon has said, from where I sit, from this seat under the sun, nothing makes sense. I cannot see clearly. Every experience in my life has been absurd. Everything I own, everything I do, everything I collect, everything I believe, everything I disbelieve, everything in life just seems absurd. And so we come to the end of this book. And if you've been around here for 12 weeks, I want to agree with you that this has been a difficult book for us to read because it contradicts a lot of what we have probably believed about Christianity. If I just do right, then it's all going to end up fine in the end. If I do right, I'm going to be rewarded. If I just seek God, everything that I want is going to be added to me. And so as we've gone through this series, it's been super good for me. And uh, you've heard me say this over the weeks, but I've heard some of you talk about the absurdity of your life. I've heard some of you talk about how absurd it is that, that um, you've done everything the right way with your landlord and they still mistreat you. I've heard you talk about how you did the dating relationship the right godly way and there's still problems. 
I've heard some of you guys talk about how, gosh, I've, I've done things the right way with my career and tried to honor God, but it just hasn't panned out the way I thought it would be. I came back to LA believing God was in this, but my job has not panned out the way that I had hoped. I've heard you guys talk about it. I remember sitting at community group just a couple weeks ago when we walked through this passage just a few weeks ago talking about today is the only day God's given us for joy. And I listened to one of our community group members talk about, I'm just convicted this week, like tonight. This is the only night we've been promised. Like this, God's put us together for this night to enjoy. And that was extremely powerful to me. And so we read all of these thoughts where we walk through life and Solomon says, everything I've pursued, it seems like absurdity. But then we read the scriptures and we read that Solomon is not alone in his experience. You're not alone in your experience. We read the story of Job. And he reaps tragedy for his faithfulness, if you know the story. We read in the New Testament in Romans chapter 8, and Paul says, creation is groaning, it's meaningless. We read even the story of Jesus when he's on the cross. Jesus is on the cross, and he cries out to God, and he says, God, why have you forsaken me? And so this experience of the absurdity of life is not just Solomon's experience and not just yours. We see it throughout scripture. We know it to be true. And I just want to say to you, sooner or later, sooner or later, every believer wonders if being a Christian is worth it. Even every pastor wakes up occasionally on a Sunday morning and says, God, is this worth it? Is there any meaning in what I'm pursuing? And Solomon's going to land the plane here in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, and he's going to talk about the lens that we are seeing life through. He's going to posture to us this idea that life without this God lens, if you will, is absurd. And even sometimes with a lens you're looking through where God is at the forefront, even then sometimes life still seems absurd. But the challenge in the book of Ecclesiastes to all of us Throughout these 12 weeks, if you've been paying attention, the challenge in the book of Ecclesiastes is to live in this world as it really is, not how we assume and believe it to be. And so Solomon has said for nine chapters, everything I have pursued, it's just an illusion. I can't see clearly. It's not what I thought it was supposed to be. And so the challenge and Solomon's call to us here in the book of Ecclesiastes is this abandon, is this call to abandon the illusionment of this self-importance idea. Remember Solomon talked about power and wealth and achievement and pleasure and all of these things, all of these things that are wrapped around our hearts we call uh, self. And so Solomon's challenged us and called us to abandon this idea of self-importance. He's also called us to face life and death honestly. And then finally here in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, He's going to challenge us in fear and trembling to accept this dependence on God, to see life through this one lens. So Ecclesiastes chapter 12, we've come to the end of the matter. We've come to the end of the matter, and I'm excited about it because I'm not sure I can say anything differently than what we said for 12 weeks. We say it over and over and over, but it is so good. And so Ecclesiastes chapter 12, starting in verse 13, let's end the book today. The take-home message from Solomon, just so you know, is going to be short, but extremely powerful. Verse 13, Solomon says, now all has been heard. And here's the conclusion of the matter. Isn't that good? 
Like he's like, okay, he's going to wrap this whole thing up succinctly. I, I, I like that. Like I'm a bottom line kind of guy. Like if, 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 if we work together, like don't come in the office and talk about a million things. Just give me the bottom line. Like I get to the bottom line. I love this. Solomon's like, here's the bottom line. I love it. Now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Listen to what he says. Small, short, but powerful. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of mankind. And we're going to come back to this phrase here in just a moment. Verse 14 says, For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Solomon starts off his concluding statement by asking us and imploring us to fear God. A lot hangs on this idea of fear. Honestly, fear is sort of difficult to comprehend. Fear is difficult to process in our modern culture because most of us process this idea of fear in such a way that it's this miserable terror, right? That I run away from God because God's some kind of threat to me and my life and how I live. But listen to me, that's not the biblical intent of fear. Hear me very clearly this morning. See, this idea of an unholy fear of God makes people run away from God. You know this experience to be true if you ever walked into the situation where you knew you shouldn't have been in. You said, did, work, you did something you should not have been in. And rather than running to God, you ran away from God for fear that he would know, he would see, he would judge, he would criticize. But Solomon's going to say, this holy fear of God brings people to their knees this loving, humble submission to God. To fear God is very so. To fear God means to live in this constant, deep belief that God sees all, that he knows all. There's going to come a point in life when he's going to, we're going to have to give an account to him for all. To fear God very simply means that you consider God above all else. It means tomorrow you don't forget him in your meeting. Means tomorrow you don't forget him on set. Tomorrow you don't forget him with those people. Tomorrow you don't forget him in those conversations. And there's some questions that roll around in our minds if we're genuinely, truly living a life that's in fear of God. Now, don't, again, put aside this idea of this miserable terror where we run away from God because he's a threat to us. There's some questions that we ask ourselves if we're genuinely living the way Solomon says. What's the wisest decision in this circumstance? Who are the godly people I should consult in this moment? What does the Bible say? What would honor God in this situation? Listen to this. We all fear something, right? You understand this to be true. We, we fear other people. We, we fear ourselves sometimes. That's a whole sermon for an entirely different day. Or we fear God. We all fear something, right? But the default of not fearing God is that we fear someone. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25 says this. Fearing people is a dangerous trap, but trusting the Lord means safety. You understand this to be true. To fear people is to be held captive by him to what they think about you, to what they expect of you, to the pressure they put on you, whether or not that's what God wants for your life or not. And you know how you fear other people rather than God because you ask questions like this. Well, what will they think? Um, what, what, what would, what, who agrees with me and what I want to do? What do other people say? The fear of man is being afraid of someone because we're 
being controlled by them. We're putting our trust in someone and we're replacing our trust in God with someone else. One biblical counselor described the fear of man this way. He said, when we are in our teens, the fear of man is called peer pressure. When we're older, it's called people-pleasing. And all of us have a tendency for people-pleasing. It's a disaster in leadership situations, by the way. Recently, it's been called codependency. Can I ask you this morning, who do you need approval of? Who in your life gives you the most value because they praise you? Who do you fear this morning? Who are you in awe of? Who's shaping how you conduct that meeting? Who's shaping how you have that conversation? Who's shaping the types of, of environments that you walk into? I think one of the clearest examples in all of Scripture outside of Jesus is a passage in Acts chapter 4 of uh, this very clear idea of the fear of God. <clears throat> The backstory to Acts chapter 4, verse 13, is that there are two men who are preaching the gospel. Jesus has come. He's preached his message. He's died. He's been buried. He rose to the right hand of the Father. The Spirit of the living God came, empowered the early disciples. And now Peter and John are establishing the early church. They're preaching the gospel. And the religious leaders don't like that they're preaching the gospel. And the religious leaders arrest Peter and John, and they say, don't preach in the name of Jesus. They release them, they go out, and they preach in the name of Jesus. Now listen to what Acts chapter 4, verse 13. I think it's the clearest example in all of Scripture of what a fear of God is. Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John. Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John, and they understood they were uneducated. And they were untrained men. They were amazed, the religious leaders were. And they began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. A guy by the name of Jose Rondon taught me this verse. Um, Jose Rondon was a six foot seven Venezuelan. He came to America to play baseball, and an injury um, forced him into the season of life where he realized God didn't bring me here for baseball, He brought me here to call me into a life of vocational ministry. And so I met Jose Rondon at seminary when I was a young guy, and I, I, I'll never forget. Um, Jose Rondon, as he, I can still to this day see the picture of Jose walking across campus to class. You couldn't miss him, one, because he's a really tall guy, two, because he's a really loud guy, and three, because whenever he spoke, people paid attention. And Jose Rondon is walking across campus, and everybody around is, hey, Jose, hey, Jose. And so I got to know Jose through a couple mission trips that we went on together, one to Uruguay and two to Spain together. And as I got to know Jose, I saw a man who loved Jesus with all of his heart. And there's a long story to our relationship, one that we believe God was calling us into ministry together. And God didn't do that, but there was, I need you to know, there was a very tight bond with Jose. <clears throat> And I watched as we would get on planes. I watched as we would go to lunch every Thursday. I watched when we were out in the community as Jose would talk to everybody he came around about Jesus. I may have told you this story several years ago, but I was sitting on an airplane headed on a mission trip overseas with Jose. He's a big, tall guy, and there was this plane that had two seats, five seats, two seats, and he got stuck in the middle. <laughs> and he got stuck with this lady in the middle, and I remember watching him. As soon as he sat down, he engaged conversation. I had no, uh, I had, there was nothing to guess about what he was talking about. And Jose was talking about Jesus with this lady. 
And about an hour later, he gets up out of his seat. He comes back to where we are, and he says, hey, this lady just gave her life to Jesus, and it's awesome. And so I watched Jose everywhere we went. He would talk about Jesus to everyone. And, um, and not long after I left uh, seminary, he pursued the ministry he thought God, well, we thought God was calling us both to. I went on to the local church to serve God, and he went on to serve pastors around the world with his vision to train pastors and, and, and preach the gospel around the world in the next 40 years. And I got a call from his wife one, one night in December um, several years ago, and she's crying, and she tells me that um, Jose's been shot. And he was in South America preaching the gospel, and he was shot by two thieves in the back. And they took him to the hospital. <clears throat> and while he was in the hospital, um, he led six doctors and nurses to faith in Christ. And I have a picture, although I didn't show it today, but I have a picture of Jose because he led those doctors and nurses to faith in Christ. He said, I still have one more engagement to preach the gospel. And I know you shouldn't let me out, but I need to go preach the gospel. And there's a picture of Jose with a blood bag in one hand and a Bible in the other hand and a crowd in front of him. And he's preaching the gospel. Jose taught me what Acts chapter four, verse 13 means. In fact, if you saw my Bible this morning, you would see above that verse in the margin, these words, confidence is being fearless of man and fearful of God. And don't confuse how both of those are used. When we understand this idea of fear, we understand this idea of terror, being subject to someone or something. But when we use it in relationship to God, we use it in an altogether different way. Jose was fearless of man and what they could do to him, but he was so in awe of God that his life was only meant to be lived for Jesus. Confidence is being fearless of men and fearful of God. Are you confident in God today? Do you fear God today? Do you, are you in awe of him? Do you care more about what he thinks of your life than anybody around you? Is he shaping your life? Because Solomon has this idea, after all he's walked through, after all he's said, there's a proper lens that if you place in front of your view, if you look through life with this lens, it's the all of God, everything makes sense. And he says, if you do fear God, this is the result. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13. If you fear God, you'll keep his commandments. Now listen to what this different translation of this verse says. If you fear God, you'll keep his commandments, for this is the wholeness of man. Remember earlier, we read the NIV version. It says this is the duty of all mankind, of all humanity. One pastor, Ray Stedman, says that's not a, a beautiful translation of this word and what it really means. Instead of duty, he said we should substitute the word wholeness. When you fear God, when you obey God, that is the wholeness of man. The secret to being a whole person is fearing God, being in awe of him. And walking presently with God in obedience. Isn't that what, isn't, isn't wholeness what Solomon had been looking for throughout this entire book? He wanted to be whole. He wanted to be whole. Yet Solomon, we read, was a fractured man. He was a broken man. He was, he was easily angered. He was never satisfied. He went off in all directions. Why? Because of the illusion. The illusion of wholeness that he thought everything he pursued would bring him. It was all an illusion, Solomon says. It was all an illusion. And I want to say to you this morning, the illusion of wholeness and meaning under the sun, 
the illusion of having contentment and satisfaction and wholeness and meaning. That illusionment under the sun is filled with fractured and broken pursuits. If you were to lay down in a bed of broken glass tonight, believing under the illusion that it's going to feel like your favorite sleep number number, you're going to wake up in the morning with cuts and bruises from broken glasses. Solomon says the illusionment of wholeness and meaning and satisfaction under the sun while we live on this planet, that illusionment is filled with fractured and broken pursuits. And he's already talked about what those pursuits are. And so when Solomon looked at life under the sun, everything he saw was fragmented. Everything he saw had no pattern. And then the editor comes in here at the end. It was either Solomon or an editor. The editor comes in here at the end when we look at life, and he says when we look at life from God's point of view, everything comes together into one whole being. And if man wants to have wholeness, he must begin with God, obeying God. Six times in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon tells us to enjoy the day that we have. Never once in the book of Ecclesiastes did he tell us to enjoy sin. There are few statements in all of the history of humanity that speak with such force and clarity that verse 13 has here. The duty, the obligation, the wholeness of humanity everywhere comes together when we fear God, when we're in awe of him. And we walk with him presently. Now look at the last thing that Solomon's going to say to us. Verse 14, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or whether it is evil. Solomon's got one last punch. (laughs) He's got one last punch to the gut. And he says, we should never forget you're going to stand in front of God one day and you're going to give an account. And wisdom implies that we live in light of that day. According to Psalms chapter 90, verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we might apply our hearts to seek wisdom. So the author here of this book has a sharp final reminder that there's more to life than what you see. There's more to life than what you're experiencing. And there's a day coming when we will stand in judgment before God. All the illusions that we've pursued All the illusions that we've pursued trying to convince ourselves that things are not the way the Bible says they are, they're going to be stripped away and we'll see ourselves just as God sees us. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 says, it's appointed under man once to die and then to face judgment. Solomon says there's a judgment to come. The record of scripture tells us there will be a judgment in which every person's eternal state will finally be determined. And God himself will be the judge, not just because he has the right to be the judge, but because he's the only perfect judge. He's the only wise judge. And when we stand before God, the perfect and holy and righteous judge, every work we've ever done will be judged on one thing, whether it was good or whether it was evil, whether it conformed to the will of God or whether it was a violation of the will of God. How do you think about that day, honestly? How do you think about that day, honestly? If you're not a believer in Jesus, can I say to you, my experience has been those who don't think about God frequently, maybe they're not 
and they're not, they're not opposed to God. They're just, they just don't, they're, they're, they're neutral towards God. It's been my experience that most people who don't have a belief in Jesus, they don't think about such a day. But if they did, the thought process then should be, this is a day of terror. It should scare me. But if you're a believer, this day should bring tremendous comfort. Why? For the unbeliever, the day of judgment means that everything we've lived for, everything in life that we've pursued, everything that we owned, everything that we bought, everything that we believed was absurd. Why? Because now in this moment of judgment, we've lost it and we have nothing to enjoy in eternity. But for the believer, but for the believer, it means that everything that was lost in the absurdity of life Everything that was lost, every sick relative that died before their time, every tragic moment, every financial disaster, everything that didn't go the way we wanted it to go. For the believer, the day of judgment is a day of reckoning (laughs) where everything in life that we've lost will be regained and we will experience the perfect joy forever in the presence of God. It's been said for the unbeliever, The world that we presently live in is the closest thing to heaven we will ever experience. It's also said, for the believer, the world is the closest thing to hell you will ever experience. Why? For the unbeliever, the day of judgment means the end of goodness. But for the believer, because we see with a different lens, we know the best is yet to come. But for the believer, the day of judgment means the end of pain. My wife is in pain today. She had surgery this week and spent the night in the hospital. The day of judgment means it will be the end of pain. The writer of Ecclesiastes brings us to this conclusion. We all have to face the certainty of death. And it should lead us not to a place where we despair about our lives, but it should lead us to a place where we seek a hope that death will never take away. The joys of this present life depend on the security of the future, Solomon wants to say to us. Now, can I say to you today, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you know him and have trusted your life to him, then your sins have already been judged on the cross. The book of Romans says, there is therefore now no condemnation for them who are in Christ Jesus. If you're a believer today, your judgment day has come. It's in the body and the blood of Jesus that was broken for you. And life doesn't have to be absurd. Life is only absurd if our standing with God is not sure. So Solomon comes to this concluding thesis on life about finding contentment, about finding meaning in life, and here is his thesis. Meaning cannot be found under the sun. Whatever you pursue, whatever you own, whatever you put your life and your trust in, you will never find meaning in those things under the sun. It can only be found in walking presently with God. Everything has its proper place when God is first. Do you have that hope today? Do you you have that hope today? Are are you prepared to stand before God? Are Are you prepared for life over the sun? Are you prepared for life after this world? The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die and then to face judgment. On that day, we're going to be held accountable for everything 
every sinful deed we've ever committed. And can I say to you, and that is a terrifying day if we don't know the Lord. Why? Because none of us will meet the standard required to enter into heaven. None of us will live up to the standard faithfully. But listen to me this morning. But the gospel is this. You are so loved by God that he gave his one and only son to take your place on the cross that you deserve and I deserve. The gospel is that you are more sinful than you believe, but you are more loved than you ever imagined. Have you surrendered your life to that gospel today? Have you given your life to Jesus today? I want everybody to bow our heads and close our eyes. The band's going to come up and finish playing. Do you have that hope that Solomon's talking about? Have you come to that place in life where you've believed, you know what, my present joy is secured by a future hope? Do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Are you looking at life through the lens of God? The only way that happens is if you place your trust and your faith in Jesus alone. As a church, the best we can offer a community, a society, a culture, a city, is Jesus. And this morning, I want to offer that to you if you've never trusted your life to him. If you've never given your life to Jesus, there's nothing magical and mystical about it. We're not going to stand you on a stage, embarrass you, make you say anything you don't want to say. This morning, you come to this place where you can agree with God. God, life has been absurd. God, I, I, I say the same thing about my life that you say about it, and that's I've lived a life that hasn't honored you because of sin. If you can say the same thing about your sin and what Christ did on the cross, that in spite of your sin, he demonstrated his love for you, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for your sin. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if you would believe in your heart, speak with your mouth that Christ died for your sin, not that you ought to be, not that you can be, not that you might be, but that you will be saved. Listen, I hope you didn't come this morning just expecting a religious experience. Solomon has landed the plane. And now the only thing in view is Jesus before us. And he says, what will you do with him? Will you be in awe of him? Will you trust your life to him? Will you walk with him presently? It's your desire to be saved this morning. Can I just ask you to have a moment with the Lord right where you're seated? doesn't matter to the right, to the left, to the front, to the back. You ever trusted your life to Jesus? Could you just say a simple prayer to the Lord? Just voice in your own way. God, I know that I'm a sinner. God, today I desire to trust my life to you and what you've done on the cross for me. Would you save me today? It's not a prayer that saves you. It's Christ alone on the cross that saves you. The posture of your heart at the Spirit of God is moving it today. Lord, I thank you for these 12 weeks. God, thank you for this view of life that's been conflicting and at times seems contradictory to maybe how many of us have thought you would deal with us in humanity. God, I pray for many in this room today You've taken these last 12 weeks together and you've opened our eyes, given us a proper lens to see. You've cleared our eyes. You've taken what's broken and you've given the potential to make it whole. 
Jesus, may we be a people that constantly walk presently with you. God, in this next few moments, we worship together. But you'd speak to us deeply. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.